Hello, this is the first episode of Tea with the Morale Queen with me, Millie Armstrong Clark. As you stick the kettle on, sit down with me as I chit chat to guests with a hot steaming mug of tea, recalling anecdotes to give you that well needed boost of morale. Now, it's a bit weird at the moment, isn't it? I feel like we all need that sort of boost just to get us through the days even more than normal. At the time of this, we're on lockdown, so things are a bit odd. And I'm here with my very first guest on the show. Very exciting. Our first guest is the Cheech to my Chong, the Charles to my Camilla, the Ying to my Yang, the Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder when times are tough, although slightly taller than a cricket as he's an actual human man. It's the author of the James Stone novels. It's the best person I have ever married. It's Mr. Robert Clark. Hi, can I call you Rob? You can, yes. Thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> I worked hard on that. I made it sound like I just thought of it just now, but no, I did write it the other day. Um, so I think that speaks volumes for me, for my writing ability. Uh, so yeah, a bit strange. First time ever doing a podcast, interviewing yeah. my husband. <laughs> well, it's slim pickings at the moment, isn't it? Uh, well, we're, at the time of recording, like I say, we are on lockdown. So, literally the only person I can legally interview face-to-face. Yeah. Um. So, the sort of basic idea of the show is, um, first of all, having a nice cup of tea, having a chat. What's your drink of choice? Like a brew? Yes, I do like a good <laughs> brew. I see uh, for our very first episode, we've decided to go without drinks. Well, I did so. actually mean to put the kettle on before this, but I yeah, didn't. So we'll, just so you know, viewers, we won't be drinking anything. And you just won't be viewing spoil, anything either. Just, just to spoil that illusion. Same viewers. Can't say nout. Podcast, what would you call them then? Listeners. Po- pi- yeah, all right, okay. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> all one of you. Um, well, I know I actually did mean to put the kettle on. I'm annoyed at myself now, but I I know you like tea. But Tom, Dick, and Harry at home don't know that. So describe your perfect beverage. My perfect cup of tea is one that you've brought to me, and that's fine because I don't <laughs> care enough about a cup of tea to have a perfect one. But there must be a time when you thought that is that tea is seriously bringing its A game, like that is next level tea drinking. My tongue is happy. <laughs> well, that, that's usually when when I'm absolutely exhausted. I can't think that I've had a cup of tea that's better than other cups of tea. It's just that I appreciate a cup of tea a lot more when. <laughs> When I'm absolutely exhausted and I just need a hot drink. Or when I'm really cold. Those are your two. <laughs> or even, no, sorry. To come, to wrap it all around. Really, really tired and really cold. Then that's the perfect cup of tea. But don't you just like one anyway? Yeah, I do. Good. I love a good cup of tea. I would be getting a divorce. <laughs> if you'd said that wrong. No, you wouldn't. Hey. <sighs> Anyway, so you do like a brew. I, I do. know you do. I've seen you, I've seen you drinking them. What, what's your sort of 
ideal thing to have with a cup of tea. Nice little snack. Uh, I don't know that I have an ideal thing to accompany a cup of tea. I like a good cup of tea. I like a bit of chocolate, maybe. Well, yes. A little smidgen of chocolate to go with my <laughs> cup of tea. Oh, 28 Yorkie bars. Yeah, all 28 Yorkie <laughs> bars, yeah. So... Given a little uh, window into our lifestyle <laughs> at the moment, I've resorted to buying, so bulk buying Yorkie bars on Amazon. I know, he bought like a box of 28, which he usually buys like one every now and then. We've got the biggest box of Yorkie bars in the fridge. So yeah, I'm surely you can have one of them with your cup of tea. Yeah, that'll oh, do. Oh, the cake I made today, I did a bit of baking. Yeah. Either would go great with the cup of tea that you didn't make us. Well... <laughs> You should make us a brew once in a while, to be no, fair. because any time I make a cup of tea, you're like a backseat, yeah, backseat right. tea maker. <laughs> and you, oh. you criticise, you critique. It's stressful. You have, you have come to me too many times over the years and bemoaned people who have made you inadequate cups of tea. And I'm not, I'm not being I one have, of those people. I, I don't do want to judge. shatter that illusion. Do you know what I do? That, if... that will be the thing that causes us to get a divorce. <laughs> if I go somewhere and I can get a vibe off someone if they can make a good brew or not, oh, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> I just get this feeling in the pit of my stomach. And if I go somewhere and someone says, do you want a brew? And I think, God, I love tea more than anything in the world. Yes, I say that as I'm talking to my husband. Any, more than anything in the world, I love a brew. But if I go to someone's house and they and I get that feeling that they're not going to make a good tea, I'll say, I'll just have a coffee. Because I don't feel like you can get a coffee wrong. Well, if you can, it's hard. It's harder to get a coffee wrong, isn't it? But, it's like trying to get a neat whiskey or yeah, vodka wrong. exactly. And I bet some people can get it wrong. Probably Coffee's for... more like fuel. Yeah, just neck it. Yeah. So I think, right, I'll just have a coffee. And I've had jobs before when people think I'm a big coffee drinker. Not really. I just don't trust them. And I was, and I've been right to trust them because you know when someone you don't trust someone with tea making, then they finally make. <laughs> I'm realising how daft this sounds. And <laughs> they make you a cup of tea, and it's just milk with a hint of tea in it, a suggestion of tea. Anyway. That I do, I do, stressed. I do agree with you actually on that. A, I feel like a a weak cup of tea. If someone makes one of them, you yeah, you, you, you judge them. You you, you think less of them. If they were part of your family, you'd give them less <laughs> less stuff in the will. <laughs> one of my previous another previous job. Um, well, I was open about my tea drinking. There, I didn't try and hide it because there was a, the people that made the tea were quite com. com what do you call it? C competent. C competent. Competent tea makers. I, I trusted them. I let them know how much I like tea. And then well, there was this work experience boy and he was really dopey. And I was like, I can't remember what he's called, Sebastian. I was like, oh, where's Sebastian? And someone said, oh, he's been sent to make the tea. And I was like, you what? He can't make a decent brew. And you know what? I was going to say he did, but no. What happened was I went in and I took over. So... <laughs> So yeah, oh, it God. couldn't. So moral of the story, just I'll just do it myself. But it's not all about tea on the podcast. That's just uh, like <laughs> a 
just to ease us in. Everyone likes it. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the preamble to the real story. <laughs> the <just> light badinage <laughs> before the, the tough shit. I'm just laughing at Rob's face at the moment. He looks in despair at my love for tea. But, so sit down. Nice cup of tea. We're just going to have to imagine we've got one on me because one after. A nice cup of tea. 28 Yorkie <laughs> bars. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, nice chilled cup of tea. Well, not the tea is it chilled. We're chilled whilst partaking in the tea drinking. Ah, now Rob. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just your face, right? So you're an author. Yes. <laughs> you write the gemstone novels. Yes. What gave you this idea? The idea for the Jamestone novels actually came to me when I was... It, how long ago would it have been? 20... I always say 2011. I actually just now am realising it's probably not 2011. I think 2011 is when I went to Manchester. But it was 2013 when I came up with the idea for it. What were you doing for two years? Mostly drinking and <laughs> playing video games. Not doing anything productive. But in 2013, that's when I did my master's degree in creative writing, which I can tell you was one of the biggest wastes of money I've ever had because you have no need for a master's in creative writing <laughs> in um, a world where we've lived through our second or third recession. <laughs> it's, very, it's very, very unnecessary. Um, but the idea came to me when I was I was living in Manchester with my, my then-girlfriend, um, and she was doing uh, a medical degree, which for some reason meant that she had to basically not live with me for a long, <laughs> a long part of that. I wish I'd thought of that. Blimey. No, don't you? Don't you? You're getting all, all, all smart ass on on the podcast, Camilla. Um, so she she was living away with God knows who, um, and I was sat in this okay average flat um near Salford Keys um and I remember sitting there and I was really really homesick because all my friends that I'd lived with in the years <clears throat> prior had all moved back home and everyone that I knew and loved was hundreds of miles away and I was sat there on the balcony because we had we had a very small balcony it, it, that makes mm -hmm. it sound impressive the balcony was about the size of a dustbin <laughs> And it looked out onto a car park and other, um, and other balconies. Don't know where the word balcony <laughs> went from my head there. Um, and I was sat in that balcony at about five o'clock in the morning, having drank a lot. And I was looking at my house keys for my house, well, for my home back in Scarborough. Um, so I was looking at these keys, and I just thought, imagine how rubbish it would be to have these keys and to not be able to do to ever go back to that place to just have this thing this like connection to a life that you can no longer go back to and it just it really sort of haunted me in that time because I wasn't very happy and I was looking at these keys and I was missing all my family and my friends and this these keys were this 
weird little connection to them that I was thinking about that if I could never go back it would just be it'd be dreadful um so I I I sort of expanded upon that for my uh, for my James Stone series and uh the first one that I ever wrote No More Shadows um I really wanted to play on that form of isolation I really thought it was good to have a character who very similar to myself lived in England has had her family had friends and everything and then sort of got uprooted and thrown into a world that he'd never been to um and just having to sort of survive like that so that's where the the James Stone idea came from wow you've got such a more creative mind than me yeah I love it that's that's why (laughs) that's where the uh the master's degree came from (laughs) It's amazing how these things come about, isn't it? Just from looking at some keys, and then oh yeah, yeah, develops. It's definitely. I've had many ideas for many stories over the years, and that's, I think, the one that I had such a strong idea that it all kind of grew from that one thing. That's really weird. I like that. Um, I'm right in thinking though. You started writing it, and then you had a bit of a break. And then you came back to it again. Whatever gave you that? <laughs> I just it's had al- a feeling. <laughs> it's almost as though you know this story. Yes, I. Um, <laughs> well, I, as part of my master's degree, we had a a writer's workshop with the other people doing the the masters, um, and in in that we'd all write a thousand words, two thousand words. We'd all get feedback from it. Um, and sort of learn and progress that way. And I wrote the the first two chapters of the first book in those workshops. And I still, to this day, think it's some of the best writing I've ever done. I think it's, to, without wanting to blow my own hand too much, I think it's a fantastic intro to a thriller novel because it just gets so much suspense um, in a short space of time. And I wrote that and then in my head said, oh, well, I'm a writer now because I've started writing a book. And I let that fuel me along for a further Mm -hmm. four years before (laughs) I actually released the book. Um, And the the reason that I ended up writing the book is rather... It's it's not a very savoury... It's not a very very chivalrous way to to start something that I hope to be a lifelong career... Um, but I've been saying for so long and telling so many friends that I was writing this book and occasionally they'd come along and say, oh, how are you getting on with the book? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's coming along. It's hard writing a book, you know. And one day, a good friend of mine's younger brother decided that he was going to write a book and he came to me and he said, oh, Rob, I've written this first draft of a book. I'd love for you to read it. And he was the nicest guy in the world. And I was really happy that he'd written it. But at the same time, I was also incredibly infuriated that (laughs) that he'd written a book because I had been saying for so long that I was the writer. And then this this young, young whippersnapper (laughs) had come along. Like two years younger. This young (laughs) ragamuffin had come along and he had just gone ahead and written a book instead of spending four years yeah. talking about writing a book and not actually doing anything. 
But you needed so, that though, didn't you? you I did, yes. The uh, spite, it turns out, um, is a great motivator. It it really <laughs> got me to uh, sit down and write a further 130,000 words. <laughs> and Now you've really got into the swing of it, aren't you? And you're really dedicated to disciplining yourself. Yeah, well, I think you have to be if you're going to write a book. Yeah. It's not the sort of thing that happens overnight. Even if you're writing 500 words a day, it will that time just flies by and you end up having a book written before you know it. And how... Uh, oh, sorry. No, what were you going to say? <laughs> it's so hard for me to not interrupt him, blimey. I didn't realise how hard this is. Um, so how did it feel? Because I remember when the book arrived in the post when you first had your book printed how did it feel to hold something you'd written for the first time quite honestly and you'll 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 hate me for saying this but one of the very first thoughts that went through my head and it's the one the only thought that sticks in my head when I think about that is because it was such a big book I thought blimey I could kill someone with this book oh my god <laughs> And it was just <laughs> that that thought because it was it was quite nice to know that I'd like built my own murder weapon. I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> built my own murder weapon. Not not the normal way you one might by sharpening a piece of metal or creating a big heavy thing to bludgeon someone with. <laughs> no, I'd I'd written my murder weapon. And then had Amazon print it for me. <laughs> Do you know what I'd use? Probably a big vegetable, because then you could eat it after. Well, there's that story, <laughs> isn't there? There's, I can't. I don't know why. It's one of the stories that I remember from school, being told about the person who beat someone to death with like a lamb, uh, a leg of lamb, a frozen leg of lamb. They beat, they kill. I think it's. I think it was a woman who killed her husband. Then she cooked the leg of lamb. And then when the police got there and they're like, oh, don't know what's <laughs> happened. And then she fed them the leg of lamb. So then they'd eaten the evidence. And that's just the story. But I don't know. But I, it's, I, I've got a terrible memory, listeners. And <laughs> I, I, I struggle to remember what's happened, especially now that we're in a life where days have no more meaning. Um, but for some reason, that's one of the few memories of school that I, I remember as being told this story. Oh. So that's kind Can of weird. I just remind everybody that you are listening to the morale? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even speak. Morale. Morale. Morale podcast. Yes. Um, I'd, like, right. I'd like to think we're keeping morale <laughs> up. Hopefully your next guest will Brilliant. be able to be a little bit less miserable. Yeah. Um, I don't know where to go from there. I, I'm in quarantine with this person. <laughs> Can I just remind everyone? <laughs> Um, so the purpose of this was for morale. Um, you kind of brought the turn down. I feel like you're gonna have to pick it back up again. So where, <laughs> you're doing well with writing now. Where can people find your books? Uh, all of my books are on Amazon.com. Um, the uh, the first one is called No More Shadows. It's a James Stone thriller. I'm sure if you if you have a little Google, you'll be able to find it on. Well, if you have a little Amazon, I suppose you'll be able to find it on Amazon. Why is Google a, a noun, but Amazon isn't? Mm. You can Google something, but you don't Amazon something. Yeah. That's the, that's the mark of a good um, yeah. organisation, isn't it? When they've when their name has become 
yeah. sort of a, a ubiquitous noun. There's a few that have tried to be Googling. They're like, it was Jeeves a thing. Yeah. Jeeves it. Yahoo, work. Bing. Yeah, you know, Bing, Bing it, something. Bing that just sounds appalling. Yeah. <laughs> I know, nothing's going to beat Google. I wonder what will top Google eventually, because everything gets topped eventually, doesn't it? I don't know. Hopefully we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, so right, you've got some serious morale boosting to do now. You have brought us down to ground level murder weapons. Um, <laughs> do you have an uplifting story for us? I do. I do have an uplifting story. So I was thinking about this whilst I was out and about. Uh, I went for a little bike ride today. I was social distancing. And I was thinking about the story that I want to tell to the viewers, um, which is about the, as we're coming up to the 10 year anniversary of the time that I almost died. Oh, great. Another death story. Yeah, pretty much. Well, uh, <laughs> this is what you get when you bring me onto a podcast. Um, so anyway, yes, 10 years ago, I was working in a cinema and I won't name the cinema because uh, I used to steal the sweets from the cinema. <laughs> um which and, had bit you in the bum, can I yeah. just say. I'm not ruining the story, but carry on. Yeah, so I was... Um, basically, the job was the easiest job you could ever have. It was watching films and s sitting around for large periods of time, not really doing anything and just snacking on loads of sweets and, and free drinks and everything. Um, and I got to a point over the Christmas of that year where a dear friend of mine quite rudely called me out of my weight and I I can't blame him I had put on quite a bit of weight I know for a fact I was eating a Mars bar a day um, a Mars bar a day doesn't keep the doctor away no no it very much it brings the doctor racing towards <laughs> you um, but I, I made the decision after I'd seen him that I was going to cut down on all these snacks just really really drop all the sugar content out of my life um and i stuck to it fairly well i think from what i remember that whole time's a bit of a blur but i managed to cut down all the fizzy drinks and all the sweets so drastically that i lost a lot of weight um and started to to notice that i was i was getting quite tired um and a week before I ended up being rushed into hospital, I went to go and see a band called Pendulum. Um, and I think it was the it's the first live gig that I've, I'd ever been to. So I didn't really know what to expect. Um, so I went to this gig and it was in this tiny little um, gym, like a school gym, on the hottest day of the year. And the air conditioning in the place broke. And we were right at the front of this crowd with this loud music playing and we were squished in together. And there was one of those, it was a, a one of the people working for the venue was walking back and forth along the front with like a bottle of warm water, pouring little bits into everyone's mm. mouth. And I remember it touching, the water touching my tongue and then evaporating. And I was so, so thirsty and I couldn't hack it. And then I I blacked out and then woke up again, still standing up because I didn't have the space to fall over or collapse. I just squished in mm. this like 
metastasizing group of sweaty people all listening to to electronic music and I just kept collapsing and then waking up and collapsing and waking up and then eventually managed to get dragged out of there by a friend and we sat outside and drank some more fizzy drinks no. to try and um, bring us down to uh, <laughs> a decent temperature and then I drove home after that as well that from uh, from Doncaster so it's about nearly a two hour drive um, and I know at one point I ended up going round and round and round about for about <laughs> 10 minutes because I'd completely lost my mind. Um, <laughs> I'll say something about your driving ability though because if you could drive well through all that then that's quite impressive really if you're collapsing in a hot gig and then I'm not I don't, condoning it you shouldn't yeah. ever do that but I feel it was about as safe as driving drunk it was it was completely i was i was so very very safe, high just on sugar at the time because i'd had <laughs> yeah I, sh I shouldn't have left the gap between high and on sugar <laughs> i was very high on sugar and before we'd gone into the gig as well i drank multiple slushies because we all bought a slushie and then no one but me finished all of them um so i was not in a very good way and then um as the days went on from there, I noticed that I was getting even more tired and even more tired to the point where I couldn't walk upstairs without getting exhausted. And I was losing loads of weight and I didn't really want to eat anything. Um, and then I went to go and visit my brother who just moved into his own house. And he thought I was on heroin because the bags under my eyes were so black. And I'd lost so much weight that he didn't recognise me after a week of not seeing each other. Why me? Um, and I remember then he sat me down here and said, you need to go to hospital. You, you, you're not well, you need to do something. Um, and I'd gone with my mum, so I didn't have to drive myself. Luckily I'd learnt my lesson. Yeah. Um, but I remember sitting in the car going probably half an hour from his house to the hospital. And I remember thinking, I'm about to find out that I'm going to die soon because I don't see how I could possibly get any better than this. I'd recognise that I was getting worse and worse and worse, and I'd been putting off going to the doctors. And then my brother saw me and thought I was, like, on death's door. And I just remember sitting there in the car and thinking that I was about to die. And I was only 19 at the time. Like, it was a really, really horrifying thing. I was just thinking of everything that I hadn't done yet, and it just... It really put things into perspective that I was going to miss out on all these incredible things. And then I got to hospital, went into the A&E. We explained what was happening, what had happened to the uh, the people on the A&E. And a, a doctor brought me into one of the little cubicles and said, um, I'm going to have to take some of your blood. And I hate needles. I... <laughs> I would honestly, I'd run away from needles if I could. That. I've seen um, you. Yeah, um, I I will pass out if someone talks about needles. It's that kind You're of level. You're even looking of, crazy now, blind. Yeah, mate. yeah. Move I just, on I from the needles. Move but on. this um, this doctor was saying they're gonna have to take some blood, and I was like, right, okay, you're gonna have to give me something because I'm gonna be sick. And she gave me like <laughs> a children's bowl size thing <laughs> to vomit into. But because all I drank for about five days was 
Ribena. And like I hadn't eaten anything. I'd just been drinking so much water. All this little cup that she gave me. It was like a thimble. It was pathetic. <laughs> Got so full. I, I vomited into it. It splattered everywhere. Went all over her shoes. She didn't look too happy. She took my blood. Sent me off to a bed. And then another doctor came along and told me that I had type 1 diabetes. And the first thing that he said to me after he told me that was, it's okay, I've got type 1 diabetes too. It's not a death sentence. And then I laughed because here was a man who had the thing that I now have who was living a happy and healthy life and I wasn't about to die. And just that thought of how my whole world had gone from denial to sort of panicky acceptance that I was about to die to realising that I was okay and that I just had this admittedly not very nice thing but it wasn't by any means a death sentence and that was just the most incredible piece of news I think I've ever been told it was like I can't stress enough how confused the doctor looked when he saw me laughing, I don't think he understood that um, that I was happy. He thought I was delirious. Um, because as I later found out, had I left it probably even a couple of hours, I'd have probably been going in into hospital in a coma. Wow. Um, and it's yeah, not the not the nicest thing in the world to get, and it's it's definitely had its problems over the years. But I think to go from feeling like I was about to die to realising that I had a long and healthy life ahead of me was just an incredible experience and it's it put everything into perspective for me and it's it's definitely made me a better person. Diabetes has made me a better yeah. person. It's ten years in about a month. Yeah, it'll be ten years I think on yeah. Probably the 29th of May. So we were going to celebrate by going to... Uh, Cadbury World. Cadbury World. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably not going to happen now, which is a bit of a shame. We'll, we'll have yeah. to do that for the 20-year anniversary, yeah. if not. Um, but, yeah, it's... I was just really looking forward to standing there with, like, groups of families, like a dad and his son. I don't know. A mum and a son. I don't know why they've all got sons. Yeah, you get the idea. And us, they're going around like, oh, it's my birthday today. I wanted to come to Cadbury World. Then it gets to us. It's like, yeah, it's his diabetesversary. He's had the old beaters for 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a death sentence, is it? It's It sounds scary. And now, 10 years on, well, it didn't take. It hasn't taken him 10 years to get better. Can it? Well, he's never going to get better. Sorry to put it to you. <laughs> Thanks to rain on my parade there, uh, Yeah, morale, morale, morale. No, but it's not taken you 10 years to get to this point, has it? You've been doing well for a long time, but now 10 years looking back at it, you can see how far you've come, because you, this year, are going to be doing the Great North Run, aren't you? So that's well, something you never thought you'd yeah. be able to do. We hopefully I'll I'll be doing it so long as it's it's still able to go ahead. Either way, it's it's something that I'm going to be doing this year or next year or the year after whenever yeah. we're able to. Um, but yeah, I think it's it, it has been the biggest motivator for me because it was. I think we all have a bit of a sense of 
feeling like we're invincible, you always think that bad things will happen to someone else until they happen to you. And I was just really fortunate that I was in this situation where I had that wake up call and it wasn't it wasn't a death sentence. It was like you hear of people who get cancer and they find out they've got two weeks to live and that leaves you with no time to get your affairs in order and everything. But I was in this position where life was almost opened up for me because I had a life-changing illness, which, as well as being fantastic to use for getting out of problems that I don't want to do, <laughs> I've used it for God knows how many things that are completely not diabetes-related, but because no one understands diabetes, unless <laughs> they're diabetic, then they freak out if you say, I can't do that, I'm diabetic. And like like they've said, you've, you've offended my honour. <laughs> well, yeah, you have used it for things, haven't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been brilliant. <laughs> um, sometimes, um, we haven't done it yet, but sometimes if food's taking like, too long in a restaurant, I'm almost tempted to be like, excuse me, my husband is diabetic. And it's really just me being hungry. So... Well, that's that fairly is fairly selfish. That should be a, a diagnosis as well, shouldn't it? Being hangry, yeah, I'm medically hangry. <laughs> I thought I was diabetic, turned out I was just hangry. But um, yeah, there's been some strange times with it, hasn't it? But I'm glad I'm glad you're all right. Thanks. <laughs> it's weird as <laughs> well. You're to, doing well. I think it's weird that you've you've only ever known me as a yeah as a type oneer. You've yeah. never experienced that that pre lifestyle. Yeah. Maybe one day they'll cure it, and then you'll yeah. you'll get to see me sheepishly eating a, a board bun and <laughs> not having to jab myself with a needle. What would you do if you didn't have it? I don't know. It, I've, I've weird, thought it would it'll freak me out for a long time because, like I say, ten years is I've got used to it. It is part of me. I've I've given myself tens of thousands of injections. And to not give myself an injection would be the strangest thing ever. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I can't because I've never had it. But I can imagine it is it is weird. You just get used to things, don't you? Yeah. So that doctor doesn't know. Obviously, he knows he helped you because he's a doctor. But he didn't realise that how powerful that statement was at the time. That no, was your morale it's, boost. It's a real shame because. I only ever saw him when I was in A and E because I had to stay. I I got it on the May Bank Holiday weekend, which is just fantastic because it was a glorious weekend and I was trapped in hospital. Yeah. Um, and I never got to see him again. And I asked one of the nurses, and they didn't know who it was. So it's just this mystery doctor who came in and saved my life and gave me so much perspective. Maybe he wasn't real. Maybe he's like an angel. Well, you say that, and I wasn't going to mention this, but then um, <laughs> you mentioned that, and that very same time of being in hospital, I had one of the worst things happen to me. That <laughs> oh, I, could, God, I never want anything. I don't want it to happen to my worst enemy. Every time you say, I know what you're going to say, and every time you say this, you nearly collapse. Yeah, it's horrendous. I'm down. already clutching at my wrist yeah, because of how much see. it makes me feel ill. It's making um, me feel sick. I'm not even scared of needles. I had to have a lot of blood tests because they my blood sugar was so high they needed to keep constant monitoring of it. Um, 
and I, whilst I was there, it didn't really bother me because I think I was just too out of it to to care about being prodded with a needle. But then a doctor came and took blood from my artery in my wrist, and I won't go into detail about it because we're on a morale podcast. But it <laughs> it was well, really... you've talked about everything else, so why not go on? It was it was horrendous. It was like someone going at my wrist with a piece of glass. It hurt oh. so much. And this nurse came into the ward where I was at at about three o'clock in the morning and took blood from my artery. And I was like in so much pain and I, I, I didn't understand what was happening. And she said, oh, it's for a test. And she went away and I sort of drifted off back to sleep in pain. And then in the morning, I, I asked one of the other nurses why they'd had to do that and if they could not do that again because it hurt so much and they said oh that shouldn't have happened to you we don't know what that's about (laughs) and no one ever could explain to me why they'd taken blood from my artery so I think I was I was assaulted by (laughs) by a strange mysterious being who came and stole came and stole my blood vampire perhaps yeah yeah maybe it was it was it was weird. That was the weirdest part of the whole thing, and I hope never to experience that again. And I hope that you, dear listener, don't have to have that happen to you. <laughs> so, thank you for sharing your stories. It's brilliant. It's brilliant that you've written the books after all this. To be honest, because it just shows that you can. It doesn't stop you doing things. No, and like I say, it's. I think the. The diagnosis gave me a lot of perspective with everything. That, I think, has been a fantastic motivator because you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. Nobody expected us to be in pan- in a, a lockdown pandemic crisis at the start yeah. of the year. You don't know what's going to happen, so you shouldn't leave things. You should you should write that book. You should record that podcast. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you shouldn't say no to things. You need to take the opportunity whilst, whilst you have the chance. You quoted me there. Was I? Yeah, I did a wedding speech last year. I didn't say them exact words, but... I think we, we've already stressed this in this episode that I have a terrible memory. I'm, I'm not, sure I am not quoting quote, you. Quoting a wedding speech I did. Okay. <laughs> sure. But, um... And I'll let it slide, because I've got to live with you. Yeah. But you didn't copyright it. I'm all right. <laughs> so good luck with the books. Thank you very much. Good luck with your diabetesversary. <laughs> yeah, we'll find somewhere to to <laughs> we'll enjoy probably it. Have some, I'll probably bake a cake again. Yeah. Did a lot of baking today. Yeah. Adding to your blood sugar levels, but you're fine. You can inject after, can't you? You'll be all right. Yeah, I will inject. <laughs> I'm tired. We've had a nice day sat in the sun. I'm tired now. Yeah, and it's getting late, isn't getting it? Getting on. So, I don't really know how I'm going to end this. Well, you could say thank you, I suppose, couldn't you? You gave him the old finger pistols. <laughs> you didn't see that, listener, but she, she gave me the old finger pistols. <laughs> and that's not, that's not a euphemism. <laughs> okay, th- <laughs> Thank you for being my first guest on Guinea Pig. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Mr. Robert Clark.
Thank you very much, listeners, for listening to this week's episode of Tea with the Morale Queen with me, your Morale Queen, Millie Armstrong-Clark. My guest this week was Robert Clark, author of the James Stone novels you can find on Amazon. You can follow Robert on Instagram at robertclarkauthor and you can find me at millcomedy. Now go stick the kettle on. See you next time. <laughs>